0: Uh, Welcome again, guys. My name's Tom. I have the privilege of providing leadership to the church plant along with my wife, Ebony, and Herrick and Heather, and an amazing team that moved here from San Diego to see this community get established, and then an incredible new family that's forming. Uh, Yeah, I'm just pumped to be here with you guys this morning. I feel like I've missed you all week. Uh, If you were with us last week, Chris Chris and Meryl Veenan were with us, and it was a treat. Uh, For those of you guys that missed it, the podcast is up. You can listen to that for free. This morning, we are in week seven of a series that we started seven weeks ago, and we call calling the series Jesus Is. And we're going through the Gospel of John, the beautiful, amazing, thick, dense Gospel of John. And what it is is basically Jesus' closest friend. Um, It's not so much a biography as much as it is an appeal to to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to believe that Jesus is the, the promised Savior. And we've been talking about how our beliefs are important, um, and that's kind of why we're going through this series, is because we want to believe in Jesus more deeply. We want to put our trust and our hope in Jesus more completely, because what we believe it actually influences our behavior. It's like the software for our life. We've we've kind of talked about this, but this morning uh, is going to be, I think, a, a kind of a cool in the morning because we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, anger. Everybody loves to be angry. It feels like um, I was. If you read the news, it's just kind of, yeah, it's a, just chaos. It's anger and bitterness and rivalry and strife and it's just the brokenness of a fallen world, right? But as we talk about anger this morning, I think it's, Im- it's important for us to kind of get our pulse. We like to do that here, kind of get a, a, a gauge, at the, uh, almost like get a the thermometer out and see where, where am I at today? How are things really going? I don't want to just coast through life. I actually want to experience it. Life is not so much about the, the destination as much as it is about the journey Following Jesus along the way, him sanctifying us. So, before we jump into anger, let me ask you a question. What makes you angry? Like, think about it. What are the things that cause anger to rise up in your heart? I love watching your faces when I ask you questions, because some people process. Some people are checked out, that's fine. But some people are like, you're processing and you're like, ugh, what makes you What was the last time you were really angry? Like, Okay, I was going to say, some of you was this morning, you know, trying to get your kids out of the house. Put your shoes on. Like, I just want you to put your shoes on. Or like, I don't have a clean shirt. Where are my shirts? Where's my pants? Like, all that stuff. Maybe it was this morning. Uh, when, when we spent time in San Diego planning the churches, uh, the Chargers were still in town. Okay, the, and San Diego loves the Chargers. They have for, I don't know, it's decades now. They were there, I don't even remember how long. But uh, the Chargers recently moved to L.A., right? Have you guys heard about this? Yeah. The city was so angry. Like, they took their beloved Chargers, moved them to L.A., and it, it literally, it felt like, the, like when the news came out that it officially went down, it felt like there was this kind of, like, gloom over the city, the entire city. Like, people were pretty angry. Uh, my daughter, Vivian, she's my youngest. She's three. She is amazing, but she's a handful She gets really angry when we tell her she can't watch cartoons. Like, I think that she would respond to news about somebody dying better than she does when we tell her you cannot watch Blippi. She just melts down and freaks out and her face turns red. Just, ah, like why? What is it for you? What makes you angry? What causes anger to bubble up and rise up in you this week? I actually, to be honest with you, I had a rough week, man. I was short, I was bitter. I was upset. I just recognized there's so much discontentment in my life with circumstances. I had a difficult week this week. I found myself getting angry more than I usually do because of the circumstances of my life. What makes you angry? Maybe it's cartoons like my daughter, probably not. But what makes you angry? Here's the thing, guys. You can tell a lot about a person. What makes them angry tells you a lot about them. What makes you angry tells you a lot about yourself. And this morning, as we go through this passage in John, we're going to see Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, get angry, like really angry. And his anger actually teaches us quite a bit about what he's really like. So before I jump into the passage, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you, thank you that you're with us right now. Um, thank you that the truth about who you are is that you're holy. You're like, you really are so different than us, but you're patient and you're good and you're kind. And you, you love your children. You have like a, a, a stubborn love and love and delight for your kids. So I pray that this morning for each of us, anybody who's carrying the baggage of their sin, maybe they acted on their anger in a really rough way this morning or this week, I pray for peace to wash over us now in the name of Jesus, that we'd actually be freed up to hear the beauty and the power in the word of God. Love you so much, Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Okay, so John chapter 2, go ahead and flip there if you have your Bibles. If not, we'll have the words up here on the screen. Uh, I usually preach from the ESV translation, that's the English Standard Version. Um, So that's what we're going to be in today. But go ahead and flip to John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 22. Okay, if you have the app, it's on there as well. I'm going to jump right in here, okay? John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, the Jews there would have been the Jewish leaders, not just all the Jews, okay? So the Jewish leaders said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up the Jews, again, the leaders, they then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay. This morning, we're going to go through three things, okay? I'm going to talk about three things. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first is this. We're going to talk about the temple in Jerusalem. We kind of need to know what that is all about. So the temple in Jerusalem. The second thing is the anger of Jesus, okay? The anger of Jesus. And the third, the agenda of God. So the temple in Jerusalem, the anger of Jesus, and the agenda of God, okay? Let's jump into the temple here. Okay, So it's kind of important for us to understand Passover here, okay? Because everyone's cruising up to the temple for Passover. Um, It says it was almost time for the Passover, right? So the Jews, they're all heading into Jerusalem. It was like the capital city there, okay? Now, those of you guys that are familiar with uh, the story of the Passover, the Passover is something that was really important to the Jews, okay? It was a time for them to celebrate God delivering them out of slavery in Egypt, Okay, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. He parts the Red Sea. The Egyptians, they, 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 they come out of slavery, out of bondage from the Egyptians, and they're free to go into the promised land. You can read Exodus for the rest of the story later. But here's the thing. Passover, essentially, it alludes to the way that God delivered them out of Egypt. You're familiar with the, uh, the ten plagues, right? The, the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt, the last of which... Said, um, uh, called for that, that that all of the firstborn children in Egypt were essentially going to be killed unless they took a sacrificial lamb and they painted the doorpost. <clears throat> they painted the doorpost of their house in the blood of that lamb that would that would signify that they that they put their trust in God and that God would pass over their house. And deliver their firstborn, and you, see, you know, their story just—it's—it's kind of disturbing. You see, all of Egypt who don't who don't trust in Yahweh, who don't trust in the God of Israel, that they lose their firstborn. But the Jews that don't, because they painted the doorpost, and God passes over their house, and they're spared. So the the Passover was this like. Celebration. Honestly, every year of God experiencing, or of, of the people of God experiencing, God delivering them from slavery and bondage. I don't think any of us in this room have experienced what it's like to be treated as property. Maybe we have, but it's a that's a radical idea. Of your freedom is gone. That's what the Jews were celebrating. They were celebrating this idea of being delivered. Okay. So Passover was a big deal. Uh, to give you kind of a better idea of just kind of how it really fleshed out in their culture, I want to read you a quote here. Um, this is from R.K. Hughes. He's a, uh, he's a biblical scholar, really brilliant guy. He says this, quote, it was almost Passover and there was a spirit of expectancy across the land. Listen to this. Probably very much like what we experienced during the Christmas season. The Jewish tradition required an entire month for preparation. The roads were repaired, the bridges rebuilt and shored up, the sepulchres re-whitened, the entire land bustled with the spirit of Passover. Jerusalem, although not a big city by ordinary standards, would have as many as two and a quarter million people crowded into its confines at Passover. Okay, so you can picture this scene, very much kind of like Christmas for us. Passover was like a, a season of celebration for the Jews, and millions of people come into the city of Jerusalem, right? You can picture this. Jerusalem is swarming with people. Millions of people, many of them, are headed to the temple to worship God. Okay, let's talk about the temple. Now, to understand the temple, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning, okay? Genesis 1. Okay, before sin enters the world, or enters the earth, like, God creates everything. He creates man and woman. He creates everything good. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Okay, you, you have Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. It's, everything is perfect. Everything they would ever need. God tells them, uh, how many kids? Be fruitful and, uh, and multiply. Two naked adults, like, have fun. Enjoy all this stuff. Okay, it's this beautiful picture of, honestly, the way that things are supposed to be. Okay, so you go all the way back to the garden. No sin, right? Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God. And they're in perfect relationship with each other. And then, you know the story, right? Genesis 3, they disobey God. Everything changes. Where there was once this perfect unity between a husband and his wife. Now there's division. Now there's shame. Shame. Worst of all, now there's death, right? The relationship between God and his people is fractured. It's broken off. So because of their sin, Adam and Eve can no longer be in the presence of a holy God. Not because he's bad and he's mean, but because it would destroy them because he's so good. So they get cast out of the garden. They're separated from the presence of God because it's dangerous for them because they've sinned. So long story short, okay, God, in his goodness and his grace, he provides a way for his presence, remember his holy presence, to be with sinful people without it destroying them, okay? That's the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle was basically a portable sanctuary where God's presence, his manifest presence dwelt. Are you tracking with me? Forgive me, I know this is a review, but I think it's important for us to either be reminded or learn this for the first time, okay? The tabernacle, God's manifest presence with his people. It's this portable sanctuary, okay? Wherever the Israelites went, they could take this thing with them. And that's where God's presence was because God wants to be present with his people. Now listen, the temple was a permanent version of the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle is this portable sanctuary, this portable tent where the presence of God was the temple is, it's, it's, a, it's built, it's, it's the permanent structure for that purpose, okay? Here's what you need to know about the temple, okay? I'm gonna make this quick. The temple was God's way of accomplishing two things, okay? The first was, it enabled God to be present with his people without it destroying them, right? And the second was, it was the place for God's people to worship him. It was the place for the Jews to, to praise and worship the Yahweh, the God who delivered them, who's been faithful to them as they turned their backs on him and disobeyed him over and over and over again in his gracious and merciful kindness. The temple was the place where they could offer worship to their God, okay? So where his presence can be in a place for God's people to worship. Now, worship back then focused on two things, okay? It focused on sacrificial offerings and praise, now sacrificial offerings, you guys have heard about you know, sacrificing animals. They would do that. Okay? They would offer up resources as well. right? They would offer up like grain and agricultural produce. So whether it was an animal or whether it was grain or something else even, the Jews, what they were doing is they were sacrificing things that were of value to them. Think about what you value. Things were different back then. Like Their cow was like their livelihood. Think about what you value. This was a place for the Jews to sacrifice, to make an offering to God, the things that they valued, okay? So it wasn't just sacrificial offerings, though it was praise as well. Now this would have been primarily singing songs, uh, playing music. You had basically instruments and voices praising God. Okay, that was the act of praise, That was the purpose of the temple, okay? Sacrificial offerings and praise. The temple was for worship. You guys understanding this? Respond if you are. Thank you. Okay. So Jesus heads up to Jerusalem for Passover. He cruises by the temple, and then in verse 14, look what it says. In the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins. Right, this is the, the coins. This is the place where he's flipping over the tables of the money changers. Verse sixteen. And he told those who sold pigeons, pigeons would have been the, 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 the cheapest thing they could sell. It was basically for poor people. We'll get into this in just a second. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Guys, Jesus is angry. I think oftentimes culture likes to paint Jesus as the, I mean, he is meek, don't get me wrong. There's so much strength. There's kingdom strength in being meek. But this is a picture of angry Jesus, man. He's angry. Let's talk about the second point, the anger of Jesus. Why was Jesus so angry? Now remember, the temple was a place for God's people to worship in his presence. But Jesus, he sees something different happening there, okay? Jesus sees people selling all kinds of animals, and he sees the money changers. Here's how this whole thing worked, okay? You have a ton of people, right? They're crowding, they're traveling into Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate. They want to celebrate God's deliverance, and they want to worship God. That's the purpose. So picture this. Millions of people coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple. They want to celebrate God. They want to worship God at the temple, okay? Okay? Now, guess what the main form of transportation was at this time? This is where you answer. Walking, yes, absolutely. So think about this. Think about the longest you've ever walked. Like, let's say, like, in in 48 hours, the longest you've ever walked. Okay, most of us wouldn't even come close to just the, the half of the journey that most of these people took to come to Jerusalem. Okay, they're walking, they're on foot, a lot of them would have, to, would have had to walk with their families for days just to get to this thing, okay? So it would have been incredibly difficult to bring animals or other offerings on this journey with them. So think about it. They don't have a car they can fill the trunk up with. They're walking, maybe a bag. So if they want to make an animal sacrifice in praise and worship to the Lord... You're not going to bring a a goat with you walking several days. It's not going to happen, okay? So what would happen was the vendors, the local vendors in Jerusalem, they would set up shop in the temple, okay? And they would sell animals to the people that came from out of town, okay? And then those people that bought those animals, they could then use those animals as a sacrifice. So it sounds really like convenient. It's like, dude, I don't have to bring an animal. I can show up to Passover. I can show up to the temple, and I can just buy an animal there and sacrifice it in the temple, right? But the problem is, is that the people that were selling the animals, they weren't really giving the best deal because they knew that they had people kind of, they they had them by, I don't know what you'd say, like they had them by the throat almost. Like they, they knew that they could get what they wanted from them, okay? Have you guys ever been to like a professional sporting game? Like, I don't know, like the Chargers or or the Dodgers or the Padres or even the Lakers or the Clippers. You go to these sports games and they literally, like, (laughs) they gouge you so bad when it comes to the concessions. Okay? We used to go to games all the time when we lived in San Diego. Whenever the Dodgers were in town, we'd go to Padres games all the time. Take my girls. I may or may not have allowed Millie to eat an entire bag of cotton candy. Uh, That's between me and her and the Lord. But either way, Um, the cotton candy was like $10. Cotton candy cannot cost more than 25 cents to make that entire bag, but they will charge you $10 and not even like bat an eye at it. A hot dog is like $9. I was at Costco the other day. You can buy 50 hot dogs for $9. Okay, if you want to drink a beer, it's $15 for a 12-ounce beer. Outrageous, right? Like this is what was happening at the temple they're, they're gouging people, like the, 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 the inflation or whatever you want to call it, like the, the, the cost of things was, was out of control, it was outrageous. Now also keep something in mind too, the Jews, they're coming from all over. I mean, they're traveling, they're, they're, they're pouncing on Jerusalem, okay? They're coming from all the distant places, right? And that means that they would have had all kinds of different currency. They would have had like their own money from where they're from. So the money changers were there, and what they did was they insisted, like, hey, if you're going to make an offering at the temple, or if you're going to buy an animal, you have to use the temple currency, because your, your currency isn't actually acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So you have all these different places. You ever been to the airport, you know, where you can exchange your funds if you're traveling internationally? It's kind of the same thing, right? But here's the deal in order to make a financial offering or buy an animal to sacrifice, these out-of-town Jews, they had to get their, like, their currency exchange. It's sort of like, if you have ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Okay? I hate Chuck E. Cheese. You ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You have to buy tokens, right? You walk in, you put your dollar in, or you, you, know, you exchange it somehow, and they give you those tokens. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Chuck E. Cheese, but like, something, something happens to children when they go to Chuck E. Cheese. Like, it is... Th- Something causes kids to go absolutely insane inside the confines of Chuck E. Cheese. Like, it's, as a parent, it is not the most fun place to be. The pizza sucks. It's terrible. Like, it's—sorry, I'm complaining, but it's just rough, okay? I mean, you literally—you'll see, like, you'll be walking to the bathroom, and kids are sprinting, tr- tackling you over, and, you know, one kid's screaming in the corner, and Billy's vomiting in the ball pit. It's just like this—it's like District 9. It's terrifying, Okay? So as rough as Chuck E. Cheese can be, right? Like as terrifying as a place as it can be, imagine if each time you went to exchange your money for tokens, imagine if they charged you an entire day's wage just to make the exchange. Like that's what was happening at the temple. They were taking advantage of people. They were charging them. Each time they wanted to exchange their currency, they were charging them an entire day's wage. Like for some of you in the room, that's like a big hit. For some of you, that's a huge amount of money. That's what's happening to these people here at the temple, okay? In order to take part in temple worship, you had to pay essentially an outrageous sum of money. So Jesus walks into this. Like he sees what's happening. The temple wasn't small, friends. He sees what's happening in the very place that's designated for God's people to worship him and praise him. Jesus sees greed. And he sees people being exploited. And he's angry. You know, you know the story, right? Jesus starts flipping over tables, driving everybody out of the temple with a whip. Like the first time I read that, I was like, dude, that sounds like Indiana Jones. That's like intense. And then I started studying on the whip, right? Essentially, here's what you got to know about the whip. The whip was made of reeds, like a plant, okay? So it wasn't a whip in the sense of like we would think of a whip. It wasn't Indiana Jones. It wasn't leather. Most people, most scholars believe it was just used to kind of startle the animals so that they would get out as well. But either way, nonetheless, Jesus is angry and he drives everybody out of the temple, a lot of people. Okay? Friends, this shows us something about Jesus. This shows us something about him that's important. It shows us how Jesus feels about God being worshiped. God being worshiped matters to Jesus. When he witnesses a reverence towards God Almighty, it makes him really angry. It's interesting, though. Jesus' anger is not a sinful anger. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. Like it's possible to be angry without sinning. I, it's really hard. Okay, I would I would venture to say the vast majority of uh, the vast majority of us in the room probably are like, can't do that or don't do that regularly. You can, you can be angry without sinning, but it is really difficult. Okay, Ephesians 4 even talks about, like, be angry, but don't sin. So anger in and of itself is not a sin. Guys, Jesus is showing us what righteous anger looks like. If you've been following the news, like, you've heard about the little kids at the border, Right? Most people have heard about this. Little kids being separated from the parents at the border. I'm not about to get political on this. I know there's like really passionate arguments on both sides. Um, So listen to me. Regardless of what your stance is politically, this whole ordeal is an example of how things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Okay, I don't care what your opinion is. I think all of us would agree, no matter what the circumstances, it really sucks for kids to be separated from their parents. I mean, think about it when you see, like, when you see the foster care system come in because a mom or a dad, they can't control their addiction and the kids get separated from them. It's awful. Yeah, mom and dad has made poor choices in that circumstance, but nonetheless, it's a terrible thing. Okay, so I'm not trying to, like, get all political with the border or anything, but listen to me. Little children shouldn't be separated from their parents. It's a real thing. Like, I know that with this border thing, there's complexities involved, I'm not picking a side here, but I just want to say, like, either way, families are never supposed to be divided. I think we could all agree, families are never supposed to be divided. And when it happens for any reason, honestly, it makes me angry. It makes me angry because of the effect it's going to have on that child, whether their parents made a foolish choice or not. That's righteous anger, Righteous anger happens when you recognize things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Because righteous anger is birthed out of love, out of a a desire for what's best for somebody. So when you hear about kids that are either being abused or victimized, like you get angry. Read the news for 10 minutes and try not to get angry about the injustices that you see happening in the world around us. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Like, I'll be honest, man, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being present in people, like for the best moment, the most sweetest, most incredible moments of people's lives, but I also am present for the most devastating moments in people's lives. It's a privilege, it's amazing. The mountaintops are high, the valleys are low, man. But I'm very familiar with the brokenness of life, man that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Jesus, he got angry because what he was witnessing at the temple was not the way things were supposed to be. The temple, right? The very thing, listen to me, the very thing that God provided to enable sinful people to worship in his presence was being used to distort worship and distract people from worshiping him. Friends, Jesus really cares about worship. It matters to him. You've heard us talk about this before, like worship. Worship literally means to ascribe worth. Okay, so, so worship all boils down to what we value. What is valuable to us? What matters to us? You worship what you value most. <laughs> Amen, sister. You worship what you value most, man. So listen to me. What you and I do, everything, what you and I do when people are watching, what you and I do when people are not watching, what you and I do, everything that we do is an act of worship. You're always worshiping. The question isn't like if you're worshiping, the question is what are you worshiping in this moment? It's like, it's like if you had a laser pointer strapped to your chest. You remember in, when I was in school, laser pointers would just come out in, like in high school. Kids used to get in trouble all the time because they'd, they'd fire that thing in like, you know, Mrs. Smith's face and then it would get in her eyeballs and she'd get really upset. You guys know what I'm talking about, laser pointers? If you had a laser pointer strapped to your chest and that thing was always on, you're always pointing at something. That's your worship. You're always ascribing worth to something. You're always setting ultimate value to something. The, the, there's always something at the top of your list. Are you tracking with me? Always. You're created to do that. You're created to worship. So, what you and I do reveals what we are worshiping. What we do reveals what we value most. It's either God or it's something else, man. So, I have a question for you. It's important. Hear me. What is your worship? tell those around you about the value of God to you? I'm going to say it again. What is your worship? Tell those around you about the value of God to you. Because worship is not just us singing praises to God. Like it definitely is that, but it's more. Worship's how we live, man. It's everything that we do. The laser pointer never runs out of batteries. If anything, it gets stronger. Worship is everything we do it's what we do with our time, it's how we spend our money, it's what we teach our kids, how we treat the poor. Like, it's not just us singing praises to God, but, but listen to me, that's certainly part of it. Guys, you really, like, you need to know something. If you take away something today, I want you to kind of hear this, okay? Your worship, you as a person, you as a unique person created in the image of God, your worship makes a statement to other people about the worth of God to you. More than that, your worship makes a statement to God Himself about the about the value of God to you, the worth of God to you. And I've been around long enough to know, like, I could, I'd be willing to bet that some of you are like processing this in your mind right now, and you might be thinking something along the lines of, "Well, Tom, like, I'm just not a very expressive person. Uh, it's not my personality. You know, I'm more of a reflective type of person." okay, like, to be honest, I don't believe that, Um, and here's why, because if after gathering today, I came up to you and let you know, like, hey, uh, love you, I just want you to know I deposited a million dollars into your bank account, okay, you can't deny it, you can't transfer it to somebody else, it's literally there for you and for your enjoyment, you have a million dollars, how would you respond? You'd be stoked out of your mind. Like, you might cry, you might shout, you might dance. You will be stoked out of your mind. Like, compare that response to how you would respond potentially in our times of worship. I don't say this to make you feel guilty in any way. But how do those scenarios show you what's more of worth to you, what's more valuable to you? And at this point, I, I definitely believe that some of you are angry with me right now. And you might be like, dude, bro, don't judge me. You don't know my heart. Exactly. You're right. I can't, I can't judge you. I don't know your heart. But that's the point. Nobody knows your heart. And they're supposed to know your heart. They're supposed to know it by the way that you worship. Guys, the whole planet, the whole world is supposed to know that Jesus is more, is worth more than anything. The planet will know his worth by the way his people worship him, ascribe worth to him. Our worship tells the world around us what we value. Guys, it's really important. Don't believe the lie that it's not. Don't just coast through life not understanding that your laser pointer is on and it's beaming at something. And if you're anything like me, it's so easy to walk into a church gathering and be like, oh yeah, my laser is gonna be, is gonna be on Jesus. And all the while it's not, you're thinking about something completely different. What's going on in your bank account? or what tomorrow looks like, or how you look, or what the people around you think, that thing's beaming somewhere else. So my friend, I have to ask you this in love. Like, what do you really value? Or maybe it would actually be better to ask the people around you what you value, the people that are observing you. You know what I want so badly? And I fail at this regularly, but what I want so badly is if someone walks up to my kids and they ask, what's your daddy like? I want them to say something to the effect of like, yeah, my dad's great. Like, I know he loves me. He doesn't always make the best choices, but like he just believes that Jesus loves him. I want that so bad. I want that to actually not just be my reputation, but to be the reality about me as a person. So friends, whether you like it or not, how you live your life reveals what you value, okay? How you live your life reveals what you worship. And you are worshiping. You're an expert worshiper. You could give trainings on worship right now. You could tell the whole room about how to worship. You're an expert at it, okay? This passage, it shows us worship really matters to Jesus. It really matters to him. So I know we've done a lot of introspection. I'm going to keep asking these questions because it's important but I want you to, like literally, just take a moment, examine what's going on in the temple of your heart. How would Jesus respond to what he sees? Like would he see genuine praise, man? Would he see delightful sacrifice in response to who God is and what he's done for you? Or would he see something else? All right, my third and final point, the agenda of God. Uh, if you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, okay? This seems like a different kind of Jesus to me. When I'm studying this passage, I'm like, this feels very different, right? Like, we talked about Jesus turning the water into wine a couple weeks ago. J- Jesus is like, he saves the party. He's, he, he rescues the wedding. He keeps this party going. And now we have Jesus flipping over tables and driving people out of the temple with a whip, like I think on the surface, it seems very different, Jesus' behavior. But listen to me, at the core, at the core, these two stories could not be more similar. It could not be more similar. You see, Jesus, he's passionate about God receiving worship, right? But why? Why is he so passionate about God receiving worship? Guys, God doesn't need our worship. He lacks nothing. He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need your worship. He's not, like, he's not like a reality TV show star, like someone who's just starving for attention. Pick me. He's not the bachelor or the bachelorette, okay? The scriptures tell us that angels have been worshiping him for eternity. Armies of angels. They haven't moved past holy, holy. Holy. He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need our worship. So then why is Jesus so passionate about God receiving worship? Why does it matter so much to him, so much so that he would get angry about it not happening? You guys know C.S. Lewis, famous author, thinker. Uh, he talks about this in one of his books, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. I'm going to read you a quote. He says this, quote, follow along with this, okay? Okay. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars my whole more general difficulty about the praise of god depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value listen to this i think delight i think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Guys, what Lewis says here is that praise is the consummation of joy. He's saying that true joy, complete joy, is not complete until it's expressed in praise. Do you know what that means? Remember, my last sermon, we talked about Jesus turning the water into wine, right? And we talked about how how the wine, it it symbolized Jesus' blood, and even more so, it symbolized the joy, right? It symbolized, like, the joy of salvation. Jesus gave his blood so that you and I could experience this radical joy, this lasting joy, this unending joy of salvation, okay? Jesus' agenda and turn the water into the wine was for you to experience joy, that was his agenda. We talked about this, right? He provided the wine. He provided the joy. And now the guy's flipping tables over. But his agenda is the exact same. C.S. Lewis understood this. True joy only comes from worshiping God. And remember, you're an expert at worshiping, you're worshiping something, you're, you're calling something God all the time. But true joy only comes from worshiping God, from expressing and completing your worship by praising Him. So, why was Jesus so passionate about God receiving worship? Because God receiving worship is the only thing that will bring you true joy. You see this. So whether it's turning water into wine, saving the party, or whether it's flipping over tables, Jesus has the same agenda, friends. And the agenda is your joy. Jesus is passionate about God receiving worship. Do you know what that means? It means he's passionate about you receiving joy. Because the only thing that... Worship is the only thing that can give you true joy. It's the only thing that can result in true joy being experienced by you. He cares about every detail of your life. I mean, think about it, right? We talk about this. I'm almost done. God is worshiped for two reasons, for who he is and what he's done, okay? Think about who God is for a minute. Like, he's the most important, most powerful being in the universe, Like, Kim Kardashian has how many millions of followers on Instagram? Nothing against Kim. But, like, people value her opinion. They put worth and stock in what she says. That's fine. But, like, the creator of all things, the most powerful, she's got a lot of power, but the most powerful being in all of creation, the most important one, like, the God of the universe. Like, the fact that that's who he is, that alone makes him worthy of worship. That alone makes him worthy of being the most valuable thing in your life. Like, him and all of his glory, guys, the Holy One, him and his glory makes him worthy of you doing whatever he wants you to do. Just who he is. But here's the thing, not only is he the most important and powerful being in the universe, but guys, he's good. He's good, and he's kind, and he's patient, and he's faithful, and he's merciful. He has mercy on us, and he's gracious. This most important, most powerful being who's worthy of being worshipped just because of who he is, not only is he like, whoa, but he's good and he's kind and he's patient and he's loving and he's gracious. Guys, who he is is spectacular. There's none like him. But not only is God worshipped for who he is, remember the second part, he's worshipped for what he's done. His action. Not just his identity, but his, what he does. And what did he do? He sacrificially gives himself. Jesus, the greatest, most important, most powerful, most desirable being in the universe, puts on flesh. He leaves heaven, angels worshiping him, puts on flesh, comes to earth, lives the perfect life that you and I never could. He does it in your place to give you, to credit you that righteousness. And then he dies the death that you and I deserve on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. The gospel, right? He died so that he died for every time that you and I worship things other than him. The million times that you'll do it today. He knew. And his heart is to secure joy for you. So how does he do it? He does it by the cross. We worship him for who he is and what he's done. I'll close with this. I'll call the band on it. so Jesus drives everybody out of the temple, right? He's angry. After he drives everybody out of the temple, animals, everything, the Jewish leaders, and they come to him, and they basically say, what gives you the authority to do this? I mean, clearly people responded to the authority that he had. They, they bounced. But they come to him and say, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? What gives you this authority? And he responds in verse 19. And he responds by saying this. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they would have been like, What are you talking about? But Jesus isn't talking about the building, you know, he's not talking about the physical structure of the temple, he's talking about his body. He's talking about his death on the cross, right? And then his resurrection three days later. What Jesus is telling them is that he is the true temple. We talk about the series Jesus is. We want to see Jesus more clearly. Jesus is the true temple, and that's what he tells these guys. He's saying that he is the true provision that enables God and man to relate to God the way that God intended for them to relate. Remember that the temple existed so that people could be in the presence of God and they could worship him. Jesus says, I'm the true temple, he's the provision that enables God and man to relate the way God intended, where man gives God worship, but what does God give man? True joy. That's God's agenda, guys. That's what he's trying to do. That's what he's after. Man gives God worship. God gives man true joy. But where does that joy come from? Verse 19 tells us, tells us Jesus was destroyed Jesus was destroyed that's where the joy comes from and that joy comes because it was for you the fracture between heaven and earth, between you and God why does Jesus being destroyed result in joy? Because it was for you to reconcile you to God, to give your heart the thing that only your heart, or sorry to give your heart the thing that, that only that will satisfy only God can give that, only God can give you true joy The Christian worships God for who he is, for what he's done. Okay, Jesus gave his life so you could worship the only thing that can actually bring you true joy, that's him. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you're able. And I have one more question for you. I want you to think about this, okay? Don't check out on me right now. Don't be thinking about anybody else. Think about you. Consider you. Is your relationship today, is your relationship with God bringing you joy? Or is it bringing you fear or insecurity or apathy, maybe? Is your relationship with God bringing you joy? Like, is it moving you to tears? Does it have the power to I if I think about this too long, I'm gonna lose it. Like, is it making you say things in your heart like, oh my God, I can't believe this is true. Listen to me. If you worship him, if you ascribe worth to him for who he is, his holiness, his glory, and what he's done, the cross for you. If you worship him for who he is and what he's done, Oh, it'll move you to tears. You'll ugly cry. And you don't care who's around you. A joy will bubble up in you and you won't give a rip what anybody thinks about you. Your boss, the person you're trying to impress. Guys, the gospel is power. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. We're gonna pray in just a moment. But I genuinely think that there's ministry to be done this morning. And I'm asking you to close your eyes not to be overly spiritual but to actually get you to focus. Like I just want to confess to I had a really difficult time worshiping God this week. Like there, was, uh, there were things in my heart that were supremely valuable to me and, I, and I'm ashamed to even say that Jesus wasn't that. Like Things got in the way for me in a big way this week. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I had this message to preach because God wanted to teach me some things. What does the Spirit want to teach you? I guarantee you, His agenda is joy. His agenda is your joy, but He wants to teach you something. He wants to show you something. What is it? So here's what I'm going to do there's, there's power in prayer, friends. God is a father who hears our voices and he cares about the details of our lives. There's power in prayer. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray over us. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to help us see Jesus clearly and experience his love. Okay? So if you're good, if you're fine, you're like, hey, I'm in a good spot, that's fine. If you want more of the Spirit to show you more of the love of Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to hold your hands out in like a posture of receiving. It's an act of faith. It's an act of going, God, I trust you have something for me. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray over all of us. Anybody who's hungry, anybody who's thirsty, anybody who desires more, you were created to have your joy quota satisfied in him. And I'm convinced that every single one of us could use more. So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray over every, God, right now, every single person whose hands are open to you. We cannot earn your love. We cannot earn your favor. We already have your favor. You've you've shown it to us at the cross, but we want more of you. So I pray for every man and woman whose hand is open, mine included. God, my hands are open. Look at me. My hands are open, Father. I want more of you. Spirit, would you show each of us in this room more about the love of Jesus for us? There's all these shiny things in life. New house, new car. My status on social media. What people think about me. The way I look today. God, our our hearts can drift to worship gods that aren't gods at all. We can believe the lie. We can give in to the temptation. Satan can bait the hook and we can bite. But nothing's more powerful than your love. And nothing can separate us from your love. So Spirit of God, I ask that you would move. Move, God. And every person who's who's open to you now in this moment, I pray that right now you start to bring things to their mind, things about their past things about the ways that you've been beckoning them to a, to a deeper, and more intimate relationship with you from the moment they were conceived. We listen to you now, Spirit. We wait on you now, and we ask for more. We want more. With you, there's always more. With you, there's always more, God. The love that you have for us can cast out fear. So Spirit, cast out fear right now. Just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. I pray peace to wash over this room. We're right where we need to be. We look exactly the way you want us to look. I pray peace in every heart. That the blood of Jesus Just like the wine would give us a joy that is unmatched. Nothing compares. Let us taste and see. I'm not content. I want more, Spirit. I want more. I know we're going late. I don't care. I want more. I want more. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing right now. I see you. Thank you that we were created to worship and I pray that right now you'd hear our praises and that you'd pour out your joy. Amen.